Have you seen the commercial? There's a young man sitting with one of his good friends. They're sitting at a table, and they're surrounded by a lot of different people, and the man looks over, and he sees a married couple, and he says, I will never get married. And his friend says, oh, yes, you will. And he says, I am telling you, I will never get married. Then they cut to the next scene, and he is buying the engagement ring for his wife. Shows them, then him and his now wife sitting on an airplane, and behind them is the kid screaming and crying, and he looks at his wife and he says, we will never have children. The next scene is him with his baby. Then he says to his wife, we will never live in the suburbs. And they look out over their beautiful city apartments. Then the next scene, there he is out in front of his driveway washing his car. And he says, minivan drives by and he says, we will never have one of those. The wife looks at him and says, by the way, I'm pregnant. And the next scene, you get the picture. He has the van, the two children. We all have perspectives, don't we? Sometimes our perspectives are immature or just not developed. We've all made statements, I'll never do this, I'll never do that. Michelle and I made the statement once upon a time, we will never own a minivan. And now I think our statement would be we would never not own a minivan. Life is a matter of perspective. Sometimes our perspectives are immature, they just need to understand life a little bit better, but sometimes, honestly, our perspectives are just dead wrong. Sometimes we just see the world through a perspective that is not correct. We know that we live in a world where we live in the tension between what theologians call the already but not yet aspect of our Christianity, God's prophets have already come, God's Messiah has already come, God's Messiah has already been crucified and raised from the grave, God's Holy Spirit has come and now lives and dwells within us, God's Word has already been written, God's salvation has already been realized, and yet, and yet, we live in tension. We are in the middle of the world's most important incomplete process, and that is the process of sanctification. We are all still selfish at times, unkind at times, covetousness rages in our hearts, and often we are unfaithful. Life is caught between the already and not yet aspects of our salvation, and there are times that that is an absolute mess, honestly. And yet, on our worst day, on the day that we are the most unfaithful, God remains faithful to us. Our hope rests in God's promises of how our salvation will end. And so life really is a matter of perspective. How do I see the world? What perspective do I live by? Well, let's look this morning back in Luke. We're going to be in Luke 6. And we're going to look at verses 17 down through verse 26 this morning and look at the perspective that Jesus is going to give to the people that are following him, and he is going to take the perspectives of probably some of the perspectives that we have, if we're not careful, and he's going to challenge them. The way that we 
see the world, the way that we come at life. By the way, we'll look at this in just a moment. Actually, if you look at verse 16, um, excuse me, verse 17, it says, and he came down with them and stood in the plain. Okay, just a quick backdrop on this text of Scripture. This is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. There are similarities between what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and there are a couple of different ideas about what is going on. Either Matthew and Luke are recording the same sermon, and they are using, Luke would really be using a condensed version of that sermon, or this is two separate sermons, okay? In other words, the Sermon on the Mount was preached at a different time in a different location. This is the Sermon on the Plain, and there's a lot of similarities, but it is a different occasion, and it's a different message. I lean toward the second. I think we have a second message that looks very similar to the message that was preached in Matthew 5, but for whatever, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference wherever you fall on that. But for me, it seems that these are two separate messages preached on two separate occasions. There are going to be a lot of similarities. There's going to be common themes that run through it. But it's much shorter, much more condensed, and I'm going to take it as if these are two separate messages. Just a quick story. I remember a number of years ago now, 12, 13, 14 years ago, a friend of mine uh, was that we were in a church together, and this traveling speaker came through. And at the end of it, he was there several nights, and at the end of it, my friend said, he's the best speaker I've ever heard. He's phenomenal. He said, in fact, next week, he's up. This guy drove an hour and a half or hour and 15 minutes or whatever to get to our church. He says, next week, he's at another church up near my house, and I'm going to go hear him speak. And the next week, he came back. I said, well, how was it? He goes, I was confused. He preached the same messages, exactly the same way that he preached here. And I said, man, I'd be a lot better preacher too if I got to preach the same message over and over and over again. But there's a common theme. It's the gospel, and there's always some level of commonality um, between messages. And so I'm going to see this as two separate messages with obviously some common ground, common material that Jesus is going to cover. But let's notice how this begins, okay? We're going to look at it through this lens. Living effectively for God's kingdom now, today, requires an eternal perspective. Now, notice where this text starts, because it starts with Jesus performing more healings in the temporal to draw people toward his eternal kingdom. Look at verse 17 again. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people out of all of Judea and Jerusalem, out of the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Let's notice where Luke's account of this begins. If you can get this in your mind, there is a large crowd of people that are coming to Christ. Okay, while Jesus has been drawing criticism from the religious elite. We know that increasingly the tension between those two groups, between Jesus and his disciples, or excuse me, the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples, is growing. He still remains very popular with the people. Now notice this crowd. It says that they were some that were committed followers. There were some that were not yet committed. They were just 
coming along to see the healings, to understand what Jesus was doing. And notice this inclusion. We'll come back to this tonight and allude to this a little bit tonight. Notice he says that these people, there's a great multitude coming from Judea, Jerusalem, even from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now that is an interesting statement. As Garland notes, he says that the inclusion of Tyre and Sidon is interesting since in the Old Testament, this land was considered to be wealthy and was considered to be a godless oppressor of Israel, okay? So in a few minutes, he's going to talk about wealth. He's going to talk about a right perspective on possessions and money, which could very well be directed at them. And then tonight, he's going to talk to us about loving our enemies. And these were known to be wealthy. They were known to be enemies of the people of Israel. So it's interesting that Luke includes this group of people present at this event. He wants a background on that. Isaiah 23, Jeremiah 47, Ezekiel 26, Joel chapter 3, Amos 9, and other places talk about this group of people. But Luke's, Luke's emphasis is that there is a wide range of people that are coming to hear Christ. Now, this crowd came, many of them came, for the purpose of physical healing. Notice it says that they had physical problems, that they came to have healed of their diseases at the end of verse 17. In verse 18, it tells us that there were some that were caught up in unclean spirits and that these groups of people were coming to have their physical problems healed, but also to have their spiritual or demonic activity in their lives healed. Now, we know this throughout Christ's ministry. Jesus, it says, that on this occasion, he heals them. But his purpose in healing them was not necessarily a temporal issue. In other words, their healing was not just something to alleviate their pain or to alleviate their physical illness or to alleviate even demonic activity, that now he's going to use this as an opportunity to proclaim his truth to them in a more specific way. Before his teaching, Jesus heals them, he demonstrates his power, and now as he begins to give his message, he is going to begin to separate those people that were there just to have their physical problems dealt with. In other words, they were there for selfish reasons, and now he is going to call out and to identify those who were genuine disciples of him. So he heals temporarily to draw people to the eternal kingdom, and now let's begin to look at the message itself. And he says that genuine believers must live with an eternal perspective. Because, and we'll see this, there is a great reversal that is going to come at the end of this text. In other words, life as we live it is not always as it seems. And sometimes our perspective can become distorted and our goals in lives or our emphasis in life can become distorted as well. Now notice what he does in verse 20. Luke says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, now who's he talking to specifically? Talking to his disciples. Understanding that in this large group, there were some, the 12 likely, were, they were there, we know. There was also disciples in the broader sense. These were those that were genuine believers. But also, remember, there are some that are there that don't believe. 
By the way, I would argue that preaching in church primarily is for the purpose of edification and challenge to believer. It's not to be driven by the presence of an unbeliever. They may be there, but the message is given to believers. Okay, and notice what he says. He lifts his eyes, he looks at his disciples, and so he begins to teach them, and he says, "'Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God.'" Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Now let's understand as Jesus begins to change our perspective and begins to challenge our perspective, if you will. Notice he uses four beatitudes that are given toward the righteous that are present that indicate the nature of genuine faith. Notice he begins in verse 20 with this, the word blessed, okay? It comes up multiple times. Beatitude, blessed is where that comes from. The word is makaroi in Greek. It means happy or it means fortunate. In the Old Testament, this word, this is a Greek word, so that word wasn't used in the Old Testament, but the Greek or the Hebrew rather parallel idea of this ashray, if you will, in Hebrew, it carried the idea of experiencing God's fortune. In other words, from a human perspective, who is it that you and I would define as fortunate? Well, we'll get to this in a little bit, but we know that for most of us, on our perspective, when we see life through the lens of the temporal, those who are fortunate are those who have what? Money. They're wealthy, they're rich. They have all of these possessions, and we look at that, and we say, from a human perspective, they are so, what, fortunate. Now, understanding that as Jesus begins to challenge his disciples, he begins with this blessed, fortunate, are the poor. Now, that would have been a complete change in thinking, even for us in our culture, it is a complete change in thinking. The emphasis of Christ's words here rests on the assurance of God as he sees their plight that he will intervene on their behalf. Now, understanding this word poor, there's a couple of other words that will come up in this too that carry a physical nuance, but they also carry a spiritual nuance. While the majority of the people who end up following Christ throughout his ministry Many of them were, in fact, financially poor. But there is also an aspect in which this word poor carries the, spirit, carries the idea of poor in spirit, piously poor. By the way, Matthew 5, 3, in the other use of this, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So when you read the word poor, don't just think financial. You would also think, and these two really can't be separated, you can think financial, but maybe more importantly, you think spiritually, poor in spirit. So this first beatitude 
challenges the assumption that our meaning in life is determined by what we have accomplished or what we have accumulated. So we go back to the illustration. Let's just highlight for a moment the aspect of money for a second. So we look at a person who has a large bank account, and we look at that. They, they have nice possessions. They have all of these things that, in fact, they are fortunate. But the spiritual side of this word indicates that one's bank account or social status does not automatically determine that person's spiritual state. You could be financially independent. You could be financially secure, but yet be lost without eternal hope. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor. Now, the emphasis, I would argue, of this word is on those who are piously poor, those who depend on God. One writer put it this way, this poor, or the poor in Judaism, referred to those in desperate need. They were socioeconomically, they were in need. They were helpless, and their helplessness drove them to a dependent relationship on God, which was their religious element for the supplying of their need and for their later vindication. So while they may have been physically poor, they were, they, were, they were driven by their recognition that they were not able to earn their way to heaven. They understood their position before God, and despite their external possession, position of poverty, they were blessed, Jesus says, because They faithfully trusted God. He says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. If we summarize all of that and say it this way, just because you are financially poor does not mean you're going to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Just because you are rich does not mean you're not going to heaven. We'll look at examples of that later. It's not the emphasis on the financial piece as much as it is those who are poor in spirit, those who practice humility. They recognize their need for God. They recognize that they need a Savior. They recognize that they cannot save themselves, that their hope is not, even if they have money, their hope of eternal life and success in life is not built on their money, it is built on God. And he says, fortunate are those who are poor in spirit because you will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's where we wrestle, isn't it? We want to build our kingdom now. We want our kingdom today. And with that comes our pride, with that comes our arrogance, with that becomes our pursuit, if we for a moment highlight the financial piece of this word, it becomes my desire to get wealthy in this life and to accumulate possessions in this life and to make life all about money and possessions that in fact, when he says later, when he goes to the woes, he says in verse 24, woe to the rich because you have what you have now, but in eternity, you will have nothing. You see, if we're gonna be a true believer, we have to live with an eternal perspective. 
Because so often we see those who are arrogant or boastful or have money, possess all those things, as if they are the fortunate ones. But the reality is, according to Jesus, he says to all of those wealthy ones that were present, those from Tyre and Sidon in particular, you think you have your blessing, and you do now, but there's coming a time for those who are poor in spirit that you will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a change of perspective. Now notice the second one in verse 21. He says, blessed are those who hunger. Notice the word now. For you shall be filled. He goes now to the issue of hunger. And he says that the hungry and those who are overwhelmed by grief are really often those who are the subgroups under the heading of poor. The hungry recognize they are painfully deficient in these things. The hunger, hunger here is, again, economic, but it also is religious. It has a religious overtone to it. Matthew 5, 6, to refer to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after, what? Righteousness. For they shall be filled. Those who are hungry now understand that their hunger will not last Forever. Now notice he says that those who are hungry, he goes on and he says, you shall be filled. Now this is interesting. This is a time in the Greek language where this is called a divine passive. A divine passive. What that means is this. You didn't fill yourself. Okay. This is not something that you are able to do. It's not something that you are able to accomplish Blessed are they who hunger, in a spiritual sense, hunger and thirst after righteousness, because you shall be filled up. You will be filled by the Holy Spirit of God. You will be filled by the blessings of God. You will experience God's blessing. Psalm 107 says this, And gathered them out of the lands from east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in solitary In a solitary way, they found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. Psalm 119, verse 57 may very well put it very pointedly for us. You are my portion, O Lord. Jesus will lead them into righteousness. He will provide care for them, and he will demonstrate to them. But notice the next one. He says at the end of verse 21, blessed are they that weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, laughter is interesting because he's not talking about a trivial laughter at a joke or something like that. The Old Testament background for weeping pictures a person mourning for a variety of reasons. But primarily, they were crying because of their suffering, because of the injustices that they were facing in the world, particularly when God's people were pressured and when God's people were persecuted. They were facing pain. They were facing hardship because of their faith in God. Isaiah 60, verse 20. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting life, and your days of mourning shall be ended. We know in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. 
And he says, blessed are you that weep now, for you will laugh. Now, let's keep moving so we can come back and make the contrast in just a moment. But notice verse 22. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate from their company, they shall reproach you and cast your name out as evil for the son of man's sake. He says there's also a message here to those who are persecuted. The state of blessedness, notice he uses the word again, blessed are you when they hate you. The state of blessedness is tied to a close relationship with the Son of Man. He says, he says that this is because, at the end of verse 22, he says, they do this for the Son of Man's sake. He basically says that if you are suffering because of your faith, you're suffering because of your relationship with God, that you, in fact, are experiencing God's blessing. Now, that is backward thinking to us, isn't it? Because in our thinking, we believe that those who are not facing persecution, those who are not facing difficulty, they must be the ones who are receiving God's blessing. The reality is, he says, blessed are you when you face spiritual opposition. Spiritual opposition is to be expected by those who follow Christ. The reason that these people were going to experience this rejection was because of their relationship with God. Now, let's pause for a moment and say it this way. Why are we shocked? When the truth that we proclaim from Scripture is received with opposition, why are we shocked by that? We were talking on my Friday Bible study about after the rapture happens, what, what will people's perspective be on the world? When the Christians are gone, the church has been raptured, what will the world think? Honestly, most of them are going to be thrilled to death that you're gone. Because when you proclaim truth and you proclaim the unchanging truth of Scripture, you should expect opposition. Notice how he describes it. He says, first of all, that you will experience hatred. This was religious opposition to God's people. For a person to align themselves with Christ is to invite a strong reaction even hatred. He says that you're blessed when they hate you. Also, secondly, when you shall be separated from, when you shall be excluded. This is a reference to social ostracism. He says also that not only would you be separated from, they shall reproach you. This is to revile someone to insult them. This is a reference to slander, to verbal attacks. The last part of that verse, he says that you also will be cast out for your, as your name as evil. They will call you evil. They will call your name evil. They will attack your name. This is to attack them as a person. This last phrase indicates absolute, total rejection. That's encouraging, isn't it? Now, remember, remember who he's talking to. He's got, as Kyle Eidelman calls them, lots of fans there. 
They're applauding the show. Whew. Do another healing. Do another exorcism. That was cool, man. Sign me up. This is great. And now Jesus begins to challenge their thinking. Okay, if you're going to follow me, okay, you're going to become a true disciple. You're not going to just be a fan. You're going to be actually committed to me. Then you better understand that you are going to face hatred, exclusion, insults, and your very being is going to be attacked. Now notice verse 23. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And oh, by the way, they treated the prophets just like that. Why would you be surprised? Now, let's change and understand the, the sting in this by looking at the latter part of this opening section, because unbelievers must evaluate their lives from eternal perspective. The tone changes in verse 24. He goes from blessings, okay, McElroy, Beatitudes to four woes. These are given to the unrighteous. This is given to those who are not genuine believers. These woes serve as reassurance to the righteousness, uh, to the righteous rather, of God's coming. They are, in a sense, four description of the same group of people. The woes that are giving are not addressed to the true disciples, but to those who are only there for the purpose of experiencing physical healing. These woes highlight the reversal of circumstances that will occur at the time of God's judgment at the inauguration of God's kingdom. You know this, but woe is an expression of pity for those who stand under God's divine Judgment, woe is an expression that was used to warn those who are in danger of judgment. Notice verse 24. But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Christ's, Christ's message is good news to the poor, but bad news to the rich. What one perceives to be an advantage in this life at times can become a problem for a person coming into God's kingdom. Now, we need to understand that men like Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus demonstrate clearly that there were rich people who repented of their sin and became right with God. Keep your finger there and go to Luke 12 for a moment and look at an illustration that he uses over in Luke 12. Because understanding this dynamic of possessions and money, because the problem rests in the attitude that is displayed by the wealthy. The rich find their security in their riches. They use their wealth for their status to neglect the poor. Wealth becomes their God if they're not careful. Notice what he says in verse 13 of Luke 12. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto him, unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he brought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will 
pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, understand, he is not saying that it's sinful to be rich. He's not saying that a rich person can't be saved. He's not saying that a rich person cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What he is talking about is the one, the one who rests and puts their trust in their possessions. Those who believe that their money their possessions, their position, whatever it may be, that somehow that is what life is all about. Even in the illustration in Luke 12, in the parable that he tells, the guy builds, has a successful year, he tears down his barns, he builds new ones, and he basically says, I'm just going to sit back, enjoy my life. I've reached the point in life where I can now just enjoy things. And he, Jesus says, that man is an absolute fool. He may have been rich from a human perspective, but he was not rich from God's perspective. And Jesus says, woe to him. The reason that this woe is stated is clearly, clearly spelled out by Jesus. He says, because the rich have already received their consolation. The possessions of the rich are, in a sense, a loser's trophy compared with eternity. All those things that were accumulated, all the use of money, all those things that we look at people and we say, wow, they're so fortunate to have this possession and to have that. Wow, they are so fortunate. And Jesus says, if your emphasis in life rests only in money, you better enjoy it now because when the kingdom comes, you are going to be greatly disappointed. The great reversal. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Woe to you who are rich. Because if that's what your life is all about, you had your consolation. Notice he goes on, verse 25, and he says, Woe unto you that are full, for you will hunger. In the future, the rich will lack the things that they now have in abundance. While they may experience temporal satisfaction here, the picture of fullness, they will experience eternal hunger. He goes on in verse 25, the latter part, he says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Those who are rich may have an attitude of laughter now, but it will be replaced with weeping. This word is interesting, by the way. The Greek word there is galeo. And it's often associated with laughter that is boastful, self-satisfied, condescending, or associated with rejoicing when others face harm. Now, let me give you an illustration of what that means in just a second. But um, this comes from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation 
of the Old Testament. Okay, remember, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Well, by the time you come to Greek-speaking people, they didn't speak Hebrew, so they needed a translation. Much like we today, we use English translations. They're based on the original languages, but we, most of you don't read Hebrew, you don't read Greek, you don't speak Hebrew, you don't speak Greek. You need a translation, whether it's in English or French or Spanish. And none of the translations are inspired, only the original manuscripts were inspired. And what is interesting is this Greek Septuagint, which was a translation into Greek of the Hebrew from the Old Testament, is what the New Testament writers quote. Interesting. They don't quote the Hebrew, they actually use the Hebrew, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here, this is a verse from the Old Testament that uses this Greek word to translate Lamentations 1-7. It says, In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, where her people fell into the land of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. The word mocked, is the same Greek word, galeo, that means to laugh boastfully, self-satisfied, to laugh in a condescending way, or to be associated with the rejoicing when someone else falls into harm. Personally, I can't think of a better way to describe our culture's attitude toward Christians. They are laughing their heads off at us. They think we are a bunch of fools, we are archaic, that we believe in fairy tales, that the Bible's not inspired, and they laugh in a condescending way at us to say, you people are absolutely ridiculous. Your view of marriage is antiquated. You shouldn't be holding on to those old traditions. You shouldn't be judging people on their sexual orientation. You shouldn't be making those statements. What's wrong with you? There is something inherently wrong with you if you believe this. And the picture is that those who are laughing at us in indifference and in self-satisfaction, that there is coming a time of a great reversal. Now, we don't boast in that. That's not, uh uh-huh, they're going to get theirs. That's not the picture. But the picture is those who are laughing and condescending, and those who believe that I have life figured out, and life is going to be about me, and I'm going to accomplish all these things. He says, in the age to come, when the kingdom arrives... Woe to you who are laughing now because you are going to mourn and weep. Your temporal circumstances that are hard and difficult and challenging are just that. They are temporal. They're they're passing. But those, you get the overwhelming picture of arrogance and condescension. And he says, those who are living with this kind of spirit, woe to you, because when the kingdom comes, you will experience the great reversal. Now notice the last one in verse 26. He says, woe to you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. To be well spoken of, to be ill spoken of in our society is the natural outworking of society's opposition toward God. 
This is a warning to not fall into the trap of courting acceptance for one's message at the expense of speaking false things. He likens those who are more interested in popularity to those who were the false prophets. They gave a message that was comfortable. They preached a message that everybody liked. But he says that woe to you if that is what you're doing. It's kind of like this. People, sometimes you ask enough people their opinion, you're going to find somebody who agrees with you. And those are usually the people you like best. The ones who tell you what you want to hear. And he says, woe to you. He says, woe to those who are building up their name. They're worried about their popularity. He says, your fathers did this to the false prophets, but they were wrong. Now, let's apply this. What does all this mean? Well, living faithfully for God now, today, may produce poverty, rejection, and pain. Part of the problem with our perspective in life is that we believe that when we get saved, all of our problems, difficulties, challenges in life should go away. Jesus says you're blessed when you're poor. You're blessed when you are hungry. You are blessed when you are weeping. You are blessed... When you're hated, understanding that that blessing, while it may not humanly, temporally feel that way, that your reward will be great in heaven. And you know as well as I know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with instant gratification. We want everything now We want it easy. We want it quick. Life doesn't work out the way that I think it should. In 5.2 seconds, I'm disappointed. Or I'm the word, I'm bored with life. He says, you know what? You have to keep life in perspective because while you may be experiencing hardship today, you will experience God's abundant blessing. Believers are warned not to be deceived by the self-sufficient, the indifferent lifestyle, or those of those who may appear to be receiving God's blessing. They have much now, but when the kingdom comes, they will be greatly lacking. The great reversal. God will care for his people. They will experience God's eternal blessing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God brings comfort to our hearts through his promises. God does not promise that all of your hopes and dreams will be realized in this world. He doesn't promise you popularity. He doesn't promise you temporal comfort. But God has provided his children with eternal comfort that is built on the promises of God's word. And so while I may live in this life and not get everything that my heart desires, every fantasy and dream that I may have may never become a reality. And my my response to that can be one of two things. Either 
I can become angry, bitter, resentful that I don't have those things. Or I can understand life from an eternal perspective. The perspective that says that God has promised those who are faithful to him that when the kingdom comes, there will be great reward for you in heaven. Life is hard at times, it's difficult at times, but we understand that God has promised blessing to those who believe in him and God's comfort to our hearts through our progressive sanctification also serves to encourage us. There is increasing evidence that we are true disciples of Christ and we are becoming more like him. So life really is a matter of perspective. How's yours, I wonder? Do you believe that this life is all that there is and so I'm just going to live life for this world and I'm going to live for temporal things and I'm just going to take enjoyment in that God says, if you do that, when the kingdom comes, you will experience great heartache. And maybe those that are here that are living for God's values, you are living for faithfulness to God, and you're looking at others who seem to be fortunate way beyond you, and you're discouraged. Remember the promises of God's kingdom. Remember that our priorities in this life will have eternal ramifications. God's eternal blessing rests on those who come to him and receive what he is graciously offering. So as we summarize really this section, being a faithful disciple of Christ produces blessings that will last for all eternity. Don't lose perspective. Don't get caught up in believing that somehow God has forgotten you or getting discouraged by some of the circumstances that come at life, come at you in life, just remember, from an eternal perspective, the faithfulness you have today will produce blessings that will last for all eternity. Let's pray.